0: So, yeah, you got one guy who will pick off a bottle twice a year for three and a half grand just to swing his dick around, but he's getting ripped off. Yeah. That bottle should have gone for two grand at the top. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a discerning buyer, as somebody who understands the underlying business and is not just pissing money away. (laughs)
1: As the bourbon market has taken off, our guest gives some great insight that complements, but it also may contradict episode 117 that we did with Chuck Cowdery talking about the future of bourbon. It's always interesting to see how people are taking the current environment and running a business with it. Our guest calls out that these unicorns are great, but as a business owner, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because he has to make 4X on it by selling it by the poor. So for any of you going to the bourbon bar business, this is going to be a great learning experience for you. Thank you to our Patreon supporters who have been helping us with supplies with the questions to all our guests recently. We're glad to get the questions that you want answered in front of the people with the best knowledge in the industry. If you want to be a part of that, please consider supporting the show. NPR is doing their fall pledge campaign right now, and at this point, I think we're always on a pledge drive, it seems. so, But seriously, your monthly donation does a lot to help to support the show and keep it going. Go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash bourbonpursuit and learn more. With that, enjoy this week's episode. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 a cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? welcome back to the episode of the bourbon pursuit podcast the official podcast of bourbon kenny and ryan coming back here at you again this time in downtown louisville uh with a guest that you know this is for me i I almost consider it like a a landmark of bourbon tourism now when you when you come around here and you're going to go on the, the bourbon trail this guy's place is somewhere that you're, you're probably going to end up if you're coming from out of town. Like that's a, that's a for sure thing.
2: Yeah. That's where we're going to send you. I mean, it's, it's weird. Like Louisville doesn't really have like a ton of dedicated bourbon bars, you know? And so it's, it's with Haymarket, obviously that's where we're going. but, uh, It's definitely a place I always send people to go to, you know, for, if you want to get everything, anything, that's where you need to go at the end of the bourbon trail.
1: Because there's a lot of people, I mean, they come here, they can go and they can visit um, the distilleries and they kind of, they taste the basics of the basics that's out there, right? They don't get an opportunity to sit there and try uh, a plethora of the things that are out there. They don't get to try some high-end stuff. And so this is an opportunity for them to be able to do that. Uh, But, you know, there's a, there's a lot of cool things that's, that are happening in regards of uh, vintage spirits laws. There is new competition brewing. And I think our guest today is going to give us a great insight on two. And they have very cool pinball machines. Very, got lots of pinball <laughs> machines. He's a big retro arcade gamer. It seems like too. And, uh, and so he's going to give us a, a lot of good information there. Hopefully it's going to be some good information for anybody that's out there that thinks they're going to cash in on the whiskey hype and, <laughs> and open up their own bar. He's going to probably, uh, Maybe uh, play a game of Mythbusters here while we're at it too. <laughs> yeah, <right>? so. exactly. <laughs> so with that, let's go ahead and introduce our guest. So today we have Matt Landon. Matt is the owner, proprietor, the man of Haymarket Whiskey Bar here in Louisville, Kentucky. So Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. It's good to be here with you. So let's uh, let's start just at kind of like the very beginning, like what got you into bourbon? What started Haymarket? Like, How did that all happen? Because I know at one point it was called uh, Derby City Espresso, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. So I, I, um, I moved to Kentucky. It's going to be nearly 13 years now. <clears throat> I moved to Kentucky nearly 13 years ago. And um, that's what first got me into bourbon. Uh, I moved here from Europe where I had been pursuing a career doing Uh, Journalism and public relations. Uh, I consider myself a doctor of journalism, much like the other famous native son of Louisville, even though I'm not a native son, Dr. Thompson. And so I practiced journalism in both Italy and Germany. And then I got suckered into the dark side and went to work for the corporations (laughs) doing public relations. And then I moved to Kentucky, and that <laughs> career ended. That was over. There, there weren't a lot of people here in Kentucky I was going to be able to do those things for. And I ended up uh, in the coffee business. Um, and so I opened a coffee shop called Derby City Espresso uh, in April of 2007. And it wasn't even a coffee shop. I should buy coffee, like— from your days in Italy, you just... Pretty much, got yeah. Gotcha. I,
2: I I realized I try and do the Starbucks thing.
0: No, I, there was this thing going on called the third wave, and it was really the birth of independent coffee shops. Um, in fact, my machine, which is sitting in the room with us, my old espresso machine, was originally at a Starbucks. And when Starbucks, in their business maturation, there was a point where they homogenized all of their stores because with the semi-automatic espresso machine, there's a lot of operator influence, so to speak, meaning mm-hmm. the guy who's making the espresso can make it really good or he can make it really bad. Starbucks at that point realized we need to go fully automated. Exactly. Like, let's, let's we need surprise. to be the burger king of coffee. You know, it's got to taste the same whether you're in Burbank, Boston, or Berlin. Mm-hmm. And so they took all those semi-automatic machines, put them up on the market. I bought one real cheap, and I got into the espresso business. And I got into downtown. More importantly, I saw the writing on the wall for what was happening in downtown Louisville, and I saw that things were about to change dramatically. And so I got myself a piece of a uh, piece of property down there and and opened up this coffee shop. Now I never wanted to be in the bar business. I didn't drink. A lot of bourbon. <laughs> but did you drink a lot of coffee? <laughs> yeah, I did drink a lot of coffee. Oh, boy, did I ever. Cold press, French press, you name it. But mostly espresso. Right. In fact, if you'd come into my coffee shop, I'd say, good to see you. What can I get for you? And if you asked for coffee, I'd make sure to let you know that I'd be happy to make you an Americano. Did <laughs> you draw, like, the fancy leaves, you know, in the in the lattes? I didn't. I never actually was that good at that. Um I never I never put the energy into practicing my latte art. So no, I didn't put any fancy designs in there. I'm actually not a fan of that because I typically add sugar to my coffee and immediately destroy <laughs> the artwork. <laughs> and I think it's like just this sort of it's nice, it looks good, great.
1: Now it's want it to
2: taste good.
0: It's on Instagram, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: So I guess what what was that pivot point? Like what what was the um what was that moment that you said like, "Okay, well, it's it was, I don't was it failing or was it not Doing move it as well over? Or espresso it, Here, bring on the
2: bourbon.
0: Yeah, well, um pretty much I made the move into the whiskey business um because yeah, the coffee shop pretty much had failed. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just sort of eking it out. I had added craft beer to the lineup of products I sold, and it just wasn't really cutting it. I'd gone back to grad school during this time of owning and operating derby city espresso because i literally needed to supplement my income so i was like oh, i'll just go back to grad school and use all those student loans up <laughs> well i finished grad school everything but the thesis and i realized the gravy train of student loans was was headed out of town right yeah and so i had i just had sort of a a change of heart you know despite not wanting to be in the bar business after years of being in the quasi bar business coffee shop, beer bar business, which might as well be a bar, except when people asked you for bourbon, you had to say no, mm-hmm. I decided I was going to start saying yes. So, I mean, did, was that actually a thing that yeah. people come in and they're like, can I get a bourbon with my coffee? Well, yeah, either? Derby City Espresso was more of a nightlife joint anyways, downtown. We were really early pioneers. We did a lot of uh, folk music and acoustic music and we'd have concerts because the coffee shop business just... In those in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, <laughs> I don't know if anybody really remembers what downtown was like, but there was no Nulu.
2: Yeah, I, I mean,
0: my horny. Derby City Espresso concept came into that area when there was nothing there except the Mayan Cafe and a couple of art galleries.
1: Yeah, and this is so this is an area of town that people that from out of here don't yeah. know. It's a very kind of happening area now. But yeah, back then you're looking at 2000, 2008, right? That's nobody still, was coming downtown. Yeah, there was it was
0: one <laughs> a good time in the market in general, right? Well, and and in fact, that slowed down that sort of downtown urban renewal that I I, I was seeing beginning to happen when I originated that lease. Mm-hmm. And this let let's uh, let your audience know. Where my coffee shop was, that's the same place the Haymarket is today. It's the exact same address. I've been in the same building for, by gosh, it'll, it's nearly 11 years now. Now, was that hotel there, that there now? The or? hotel was there or, when okay. I first opened up, yes. It had opened about, I think, no more than 18 months earlier. It had just opened. Gotcha. So, so let's let's
1: think about what was the idea, saying like, okay, well, I'm going to open a whiskey bar. Um, with, at that time...
0: I don't even know if Bourbon's Bistro was around. Like, what, what were some? Bourbon's other- Bistro was around, and the Silver Dollar was about to open. I believe the Silver Dollar opened about three or four months before I did, maybe six at the most. Um,
1: I was about to say because, like, were those inspirations? You kind of like see these things coming up, like, oh, well, like that's a that's an indication of things to come here. in
0: Louisville. I had friends who were in the Louisville Bartenders Guild, who are real leaders in what would become the craft cocktail movement. Um, and I would go to different alcohol-related events, um, and it there was this huge gulf. There was no whiskey bar. <laughs> you know, you think about the Alabama song. You think about Jim Morrison and that that kind of tilt-a-whirl whiskey bar atmosphere that you – there wasn't anything like that. There yeah. was Bourbon's Bistro, which is a white tablecloth. They had a fantastic bourbon program, still do, probably uh, top three – selections in the city, certainly some of the best food in the city. Um, there's the Silver Dollar, which was, again, a restaurant bar. And when I looked around, what I saw was that every bar on the Urban Bourbon Trail at that time, and there were only like 10 of them. Yeah, I was going to say, it wasn't too There many. weren't many. There were eight at the beginning, and this is, you know, there were a few more. There may be a dozen. Every single one of them was either a restaurant, fine dining, or it was a hotel bar. And I just said, well, why the hell can't, This coffee shop beer bar become a whiskey bar. If you only need 50 bourbons to get on the urban bourbon trail, (laughs) well, let's – the day I open – That's that's one phone call. One phone call. The day I open, we're going to have 50 Mm -hmm. bourbons. And, you know, I didn't think – it. I mean, it's been more successful than I ever imagined. Mm -hmm. And we have more bourbon than I ever imagined.
2: Yeah, because I – Back in that, I, I remember, like we, I said in the intro, there's not, it's crazy that we're in the epicenter of bourbon and there wasn't That's a the weird thing about Louisville. Louisville
0: sort of turned its back on yeah, its until legacy. Recently. You know, I mean, the Urban Bourbon Trail began 10 years ago, and that was the first tentative step towards a new bourbon culture in Louisville. Mm-hmm. Um, And I give a lot of props to the Convention and Tourism Board because they led. Not the restaurateur, not the small business person, not the bourbon industry itself. It was the city and its Convention and Tourism Board that had the foresight. And that started that condensation process, like taking alcohol vapor and recondensing it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There you go. And that started, and here we are, 10 years later, celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Urban Bourbon Trail— and there's still only one real whiskey bar in Louisville, and that's the Haymarket. I'm honestly <laughs> amazed. I've been open five years, and nobody has tried to come and do what I did and open up another whiskey bar. It still hasn't happened. I, I was about to say, I was like, I mean, do you consider, like, what you built so far, like, a, as we were
1: saying before, like, a landmark on the bourbon trail? Like, how many people do you think come in there every single week and say, sort of
0: like, oh, we're, we're doing the bourbon trail, and we're going to stop by Haymarket? I try not to think about it like that. I just want to— I, I like to think of the Haymarket as as uh, we're an ambassador for the city, and we're an ambassador for the larger bourbon industry. And so we really try to put hospitality first, and we know that a lot of people are coming from places to visit Louisville and to visit bourbon country. And, yeah, a lot of them stop in our place, not all by any means, but we want to make sure that we leave a good impression. When,
2: uh, when you were coming up with it, I mean, a bourbon bar, probably most people think of, like— uh, a mahogany, you know, wood, leather chair, you know, real stuffy kind of high flume place. But you go to Haymarket; it's like a really laid back, you know, kind of fun environment. It's Where a, was it's, the design? It's diving, or, it's yeah, like it's a dive, dive bar it's kind diving, of feel. Right? And, uh, It's not upscale. Yeah, and that's what it I love about it. It is not upscale. Why did you decide to do that versus, you know? Well, that's enough? who I am. Yeah.
0: I mean, I you know, that's what Derby City Espresso was. was also not, you know, a pretentious tea room. Of a coffee shop. It was just this place that had art on the walls and some pinball machines and live music. And um, so mostly it's because that's who I was and I had no fucking money. I couldn't do something upscale (laughs) even if I wanted to, which I didn't.
1: Um, You think it's it's probably more inviting to a greater economic diversity, uh, people that are out there too, right? Well, we
0: started out, you know, at first we weren't known for the bourbon. Our first sort of success came through the local music scene. Um, and we do a lot of live music in our back room and, um, and, and the local 25 to 35 year olds who are going out and seeing indie rock bands, you know, they're not, they're not drinking high end bourbon anyways. They're drinking $2 PBRs and (laughs) four or $5 bottle and bonds and You know, bourbons and cokes, and um, so what was we wanted to track those people. We didn't want to put them off by being fancy or anything. We weren't fancy. I had no real background in any kind of fanciness. (laughs) 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 I wouldn't know where to
1: begin. So, what do you think was like that? That turning point, like what's that eclipse of of like something that switched where you said you're you're probably more known for the bourbon now than maybe you are for the, the music.
0: Yeah, I think that happened—I mean, that really—that switch happened when we sort of started becoming this thing that's bigger than just a little bar with a great whiskey selection. That happened probably about two—between two and three years ago it began. I mean, it, it, it was—you know, I didn't really realize it at the time, but people would come to the bar. You know, when we first opened, we had Pappy Van Winkle 23 for 20 bucks. That was under full markup because I just really didn't believe that anybody would pay more than $20 for a drink of whiskey. Um, Maybe that was naive of me back then, but it also earned me some credibility because some of the folks who were the originators, some of the straight bourbon board people, they'd find themselves in the hay market. They'd wander in somehow. Uh, Fred Minnick wrote a little piece about us in Whiskey Advocate, sort of a, you know, what's the next generation of whiskey bar looking like? And he put a paragraph about us in there. And so some people heard about us that way, and they'd come in. And, and I think that, you know, back then, in the first uh, year and a half of Haymarket, you know, I didn't really have any employees. It was just me behind the bar. And I think people, I don't know, I like to think that they thought I was being authentic, you mm-hmm. know, and that I was coming at bourbon from a place of— Curiosity, a bit of naivete, a beginner <laughs> yep. kind of beginning in the whiskey business, not yet jaded by it, and and beginner at at operating a bar, um, which people can appreciate
2: because so many people are new to this, you know, to this hobby, I guess, or industry or whatever. It's like,
0: well, and 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 so people came in and they they didn't feel like I was trying to tell them what bourbon was. In fact, they, we could always have that. People would come in who had like experiences beyond what I could even imagine at that time. And, and we'd have this dialogue about whiskey and, you know, and then, and then I remember the first time, uh, Lloyd Christmas bourbon truth came in the bar and he kind of scolded me for having my prices being too low that I didn't know what I had on my shelf because this is, we're talking four or five years ago. I mean, people weren't really Given a damn about bourbon. You could pretty much order whatever you want. I mean, I was getting Black Maple Hill, Orange Label NAS by the case. It was 25 bucks, 23 bucks bottle wholesale. It was a $6 pour. Mm-hmm. And we went through cases of it that way. You know, I wish I had saved a couple of those because <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's some suckers out there paying 300 bucks a bottle, <laughs> you know, for basically what, what Corner Creek is today, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I'm not talking about the age-stated Black Maple Hills, but even those, even that kind of whiskey. I mean, my first Pappy I got, you know, I bought Pappy at retail. You could just do that six Mm -hmm. years ago. I mean, you could just go to a store on Pappy Day and just walk (laughs) in and be like, I'll take that. And that. And that. You know, and take some with you. You know, maybe they'd have a one bottle per type per person limit, but you could walk into a retail store. I went into Shrek's. The first time I ever bought Pappy Van Winkle, Shrek's is a small little divy liquor store in the Highlands with a great neon sign. It's got like a Kentucky Colonel, beautiful outdoor neon sign. And I walked in and I bought the whole lineup right then and there and I paid retail. And you could do that. And the guy came in behind me and he bought some too. Mm -hmm. There was no line. And I think even the next day he still had some of that Van Winkle whiskey. It was just a different world. Right. So I got in the whiskey business and then I started meeting people in the whiskey business. And they were incredibly gracious. People like Bernie Lubbers um, gave me my first ever official bur- bourbon training. He worked for Jim Beam at the time. Currently, he's the master, uh, master distiller, I want to say. He's the master <laughs> brand ambassador <laughs> yeah. for Heaven Hill Brands. The Bottle and Bond guy, yeah, which bottom, we, we've yeah. had him on the, the show before. A yeah. The Whiskey Professor, The whiskey professor himself. He does a wonderful program called The History of Bourbon and Bluegrass Music that is an amazing show um, that... Talks all about two of the Commonwealth's greatest products.
1: <laughs> so I know we everybody hates it when we talk about Van Winkle, but we have to do it only because you know you were talking about when you first started Haymarket and you know yeah before, I said he, that first he, bottle and he, and he said he came in your right and you know he said you don't you don't know what you have but nowadays you do something a little bit different with your Van Winkles, don't you?
0: Well, I mean we we sell them for market value. We get a certain allocation every year as the Haymarket. Um, and we can't get any more. You mm-hmm. know, one drop a year, and we have to make it last all year because, honestly, it's at this point the Van Winkles are more for show, <laughs> right? <laughs> than I substance. Mean, yeah. You know, you gotta have them. You can't. You know, if somebody comes in and you don't have a full lineup of Van Winkles, and you don't have a full lineup of antiques. Are you a real whiskey? And, bar? and you're the whiskey and bar. And you're on done. the top forty <laughs> whiskey bar station list, then you know, then people say, well, are you really? Mm-hmm. So we have to make sure we keep it on the shelf, which means we basically price it. Accordingly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we price it accordingly. I mean, we... But it, but it's also, it should be a deterrent to say, like, there's better things on this menu. Oh, we do that all the time. When people ask us about Van Winkle's, which they do all the time, um, we love to change the conversation, change that dialogue. Um, Van Winkle whiskey at Julian's a friend, and... Van Winkle whiskey fantastic. It's some of the best weeded bourbon out there. Um, and he'd be the first to tell you that there's other great bourbons out there too. And he'd also be the first to tell you, I would think, that you kind of be a dumbass if you're spending a couple hundred bucks for an <laughs> ounce of whiskey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you it's know? an expensive piss. It's just, it's not, it's not, it's it's not really, it's, it's the hype is insane. We're in an irrational exuberance. It's like the, the housing market about to collapse or something. I mean, it's, it's off the hook. What I've seen happen, you know, that first bottle of Van Winkle 23 that I had that I sold for $20 for an ounce and a half sat on my shelf. Nobody gave a fuck about it. It <laughs> sat on the shelf for um, a year and a half. Oh, yeah. Nobody even cared. Nobody right. wanted $20 whiskey. It's like, get out of here. Yeah. yeah. I remember. Now, you know, we were just the this weird like- ex-coffee shop that was selling whiskey. But, but then again, you know, somebody like Lloyd Christmas would walk in and he'd be like, get out of here. You can't be selling that for 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. You realize that that's worth a lot more if only people knew that you had it. Right. And then he started telling people we had it and, and then people then... started coming in and the word began to spread and the prices began to go up. Simple supply and demand, right? Mm-hmm.
1: So I want, to, um, I want to kind of talk about it because we, we talked about how you appeal a lot to a lot of the uh, people that come on the bourbon trail, and they're, they're tourists, right? What are you doing for like the locals of the city, right? Like what, what, is, what is it, how do you appeal to some of the people that says like-
0: There's a great number of local bourbon groups. I mean, Louisville has a fantastic bourbon culture. You have groups like uh, the Bourbon Society, which I think probably has more than 400 members at this point. You have private groups like the Bourbon Mafia, you have large public groups that don't actually have an, have a structure like the Louisville bourbon hounds. Um, and so, you know, we do uh, some promotions through the Louisville bourbon hounds where we take people on bourbon barrel picks. Mm-hmm. who've never been on them before. Um, me, I've been fortunate. I've gotten to go on, gosh, you know, dozens of these things. And, you know, it's sometimes you're sitting, drinking the whiskey, and you're like, my God, it's the best job in the world. <laughs> and then you're like, my God, though, I've done this 30 times. <laughs> I'm getting a little jaded over here in the yeah. corner. So one of the, one of the things I decided to do is, instead of always bringing the same five buddies with um, or uh, the same three coworkers with, was to kind of open that process up because it's an amazing experience. The first time you ever go on a barrel pick, it blows your mind. And so, you know, Haymarket tries to be a part of its community by bringing some of those backstage elements of the industry and the business where other people wouldn't have access to to the consumer themselves. And we find that that endears our local supporters to the bar because you've now had this amazing bourbon tourism experience or bourbon industry experience that, you know, like most people don't get to see. Um, and what people we do, also
1: don't understand is that you're also kind of a retail shop at the same exact time, yeah, right? Yeah, like we're some a of those-
0: bar that also has a package license. Um, so we buy barrels all the time. We buy on average one a month. <laughs> <laughs> we are always buying barrels. And we split those barrels a lot of times with different groups. Um, and we can sell that by the bottle as well as by the drink. And that's, that's very advantageous to us. Um, and it does allow us to partner with groups like the Bourbon Hounds or the Bourbon Mafia um, to do those barrel picks. And it helps us with our inventory issues because you can imagine 12 <laughs> barrels a year, that adds up quick. It's a lot of cases yeah, of whiskey. 200
2: some bottles of whiskey per barrel, yeah. Well,
0: they're not all 200, but you, know, you figure they're <laughs> at least all 150 yeah. on average. Mm-hmm. It adds up quick. So by being able to sell it by the bottle— um, that really helps. Now, if we could only get e-commerce here in Kentucky and get, get the law changed so we can ship out of state, boy, now that would be a, that would be a game changer. Yeah. That's what we actually have in a, a podcast. that will be coming up talking to some of those other ones.
1: Like, I guess, what, what do you, what do you think is the big deterrent on, is it just old laws and just maybe just government just doesn't understand of, mm-hmm. of, of what this means and how it could increase
0: competition going out nationally. Right. Uh, yeah, I think that's what it is. I think nobody's really thought about it for so long. The law was written so long ago um, in the wake of Prohibition, in the wake of—you have to imagine, during Prohibition, there was a lot of whiskey stored in Kentucky, and a lot of it was looted and taken out of state and sold by bootleggers, um, and those laws about transferring alcohol over state lines were, were written in the wake of that experience, and um, yeah, I think that it's basically lawmakers just don't get it. There is also, of course, um, there would also be, of course, re- reciprocity. Reciprocity? Yeah. Something like that. Reciprocity. Mm-hmm. That's right, which means if you change the law so liquor can go out of state, that would mean you'd have to accept it in state. And there's large liquor store concerns, perhaps, mm-hmm. that don't want to see that happen. They don't want to see folks in Kentucky getting wine by mail. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So there's some competing interests there. Um, So you have, I would guess, retailers who are not necessarily that in favor of um, e-commerce. And then you would have a retailer like me who does a more boutique thing. I'm not operating on volume. I'm operating on quality. And so the Haymarket name, when we select a barrel... That means something now, you know? Like, you know you're you're getting a pretty solid pick if you're getting a Haymarket pick because uh, we have a history of doing this and we have a lot of friends with a lot of great palettes. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so for me, it makes a lot of sense to see that open up because if I could take orders by the internet and directly ship those bottles that we're doing as barrel picks, I mean, we would just, you we would, go, we would 20, go from one barrel you a month go to, to two. Yeah. Right. I mean, it you would, know, it, we would, would, go would. it would be a real economic boost.
1: It's, it's funny because I had somebody that was on my Facebook newsfeed the other day and they were like, Amazon ships the mail. Like I just primed <laughs> it next day. And like it showed up. We got wine in the mail. He's in Michigan. Right. And, uh, and I was just like thinking like nobody ever like, wins against Amazon, right? (laughs) Like you have to be able to like a lot of, like play with these people, right? You have to understand there's a new business model, there's a new paradigm.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's a big disruptor. Uh, One thing, so I am encouraged because the laws are beginning to change. One of the things that was just legalized here in Kentucky is liquor delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a game changer. And I'm working right now with the convention bureau. Again, cheers to the convention <laughs> bureau. Some of my best friends in the city of Louisville. Um, we're working with them in the Hotel Year Association because liquor delivery to hotel rooms is like a no-brainer, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you're you in town on business or pleasure, You don't necessarily want to go for a walk and try to find a gas station or a liquor store. And by the way, there are no liquor stores in downtown Louisville that are open past 10 p.m. except the Haymarket Whiskey Bar. Mm -hmm. But we don't have the space to carry an enormous inventory. Um, But what if you you could have that space with the inventory? And then, you know, how many people just like they want to get a pizza delivered— would love it if they could get a pint, <laughs> a pint, <I'd laughs> a pint be of Kentucky straight yeah. bourbon and a six pack of uh, yeah. I don't know against the grain or a six pack of uh, Falls City or anything like that. No, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I know you know, saying. I mean, I think there's there's a there's enormous market and that was recently legalized and we are hoping at Haymarket to launch a delivery service um, in the coming months. Well, it makes sense because there's so
2: many hotels being built right now. You know, I mean, yeah. they they need to. Appeal to their,
0: you know, guests. It's whatever. coming. Look, just like, just like electric cars are coming. Just like, uh, not owning cars may be coming, and literally just renting a car as you need it. Driverless cars is science fiction. We're not there yet, but you know, nobody would have expected uh, ten years ago the rise of Uber and Lyft and mm-hmm. what that did to transform the taxi industry. Um, the same thing is coming to every. Kind of product, whether it's groceries or it's alcohol. Yeah. So best to be ahead of the curve. On demand culture. Be fun. Best it's be to fun. be ahead of the curve. And I, I think there's a good chance Kentucky in the next couple of calendar years um, will make that move. Um, we have a very business friendly and a very f- bourbon friendly. Capital right now, it's all controlled by one party, and um, you know they seem to want to help Embrace our it. industry yeah. as much as they can. And so uh, that's definitely in our corner. We have a, a great Kentucky Distillers Association, uh, headed up by Eric Gregory. Who is in favor of e-commerce, and I know that they're putting the word out there at all levels of government. So I can only be optimistic. Um, they did get the vintage liquor law passed, which blew my mind, and that was a game changer as well. We're really excited about that. So we're gonna we're gonna be optimistic and hope that in a couple of years we're gonna have that e-commerce.
1: That's a good yeah, segue because good segue. I, I wanted to keep the the legal discussion going. Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. shopify.com slash bourbon. That's a good segue segue because I I wanted to keep the the legal discussion going. So for anybody, we've talked about the liquor or the vintage law, spirits, whatever it is on the podcast before. But, you know, you are much, much closer to it than we are. So I guess give everybody uh, a good like 15 second summary of what it means, uh, what it is and like how this is supposed to work.
0: Well, I don't have all the answers <laughs> myself. I don't get to dictate how it's supposed to work. That, that's going to be coming down from Frankfurt and from the state alcohol beverage control board. Um, we're still waiting on guidance. Now, there may not be any guidance. The law, as it was written, creates a definition of vintage spirit, and it allows for the acquisition by license holders, be they on-premise or off-premise, on-premise being a bar, off-premise being a liquor store to acquire, quote, vintage spirits outside of the three-tier distribution system, basically meaning we can acquire it privately. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the definition of vintage spirits is very loose. Vintage spirits, and I don't have the law in front of me, but if I remember correctly, the way the law, which was passed in the springtime and signed into law— uh, in a public signing statement with the governor and the bourbon industry, including Eric Gregory from uh, the Distillers Association. That was signed into law in June or July, I think, this year. They did a big public event. Um, but basically, the definition is a vintage spirit is A, not owned by the distillery, mm-hmm. B, no longer distributed through the distributors, mm-hmm. and C, not a current release. I mean, and that's basically the loosey-goosey definition. I was gonna say B and C could you could definitely construe that. Like because so you have
1: you, different years. You've got a yeah. you've got a 2013 Van Winkle, you've got a 2015 Van
2: Winkle. I mean, and that is like, that is,
0: is the devil in the details. That's
2: why you're waiting for the guidance.
0: That's exactly right. Um I know that for me as an operator who is trying to have one of the best whiskey bars in the United States of America, one of the largest bourbon libraries in the United States of America. For me, that means verticals. Um, So I would love it if they interpret that law as loosely as I just (laughs) Mm -hmm. interpreted it. Yeah. Uh, It remains to be seen. The only distillery that publicly came out against the law was— was Buffalo Trace and the Sazerac Company? Ironically, they're not members of the Kentucky <laughs> Distillers Association, so it's no surprise that they had a different opinion from the Distillers Association and the rest of the Distillers Association's membership. Um, I mean, I don't, they I heard, wanted I to. Say, I was like, I don't know what they're, they're their their position out. was. If you're going to do a vintage spirits law, it should be really old. Like Like more than 20 years old. Mm -hmm. um, That that should constitute vintage spirits. Um, They actually, I had heard, and I don't know if this is true, but I heard that they were pushing for a definition of vintage spirits that would uh, only be metric bottles. Mm, Okay. Uh, Pre-metric bottles, excuse me, not metric bottles, but the pre-metric bottles, four-fifths quart, quart, and pints, which would have basically meant that any whiskey made after... 1969 is not vintage. Right. And I think all of us out there know that, um, More, you know, cheesy gold foil was in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, that's some great whiskey. They, ain't, they don't make it like they used to, and those are uh, bottles that would have been precluded. I wonder why
2: they would be against it, like— what what, what that like? What's them? what's what do they have to gain yeah. by
1: not having it? I mean, if I had to think about it, it's not much. Yeah. Uh just you know, they've Sazerac has come out before and they've said like, oh, we want to stop the uh, the secondary market or whatever it is. Like, but in my opinion, that could all just be a big marketing puff, yeah. right? I mean, it doesn't really mean anything because at the end of the day, like, let's be honest. Like, if we look at the secondary market and some of the things that would be trying to go to these you know bars like yourselves, like a lot of it's gonna be. Buffalo Trace, Sazerac kind of products, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of other stuff out there in the market, but I would say a good three-quarters of it is going to be those types of bottles.
0: It could be be that they want to keep prices high. They want to keep allocations low and keep prices high. You know, that's possible. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't really know why they'd be opposed to it. I mean, every major distilling company has special releases every year. Uh, Some are more special than others. Um, Some whiskeys are...
2: More than than the special
0: releases even. You know, I mean, there's stuff that comes out on the market that's way better than these usual suspect names.
2: Um, It is interesting that Buffalo Trace is one of the distilleries that doesn't – when they do a special release, they don't sell it at a gift shop. You know, like it seems like every other distiller has a gift shop, you know, of – whether it's Heaven Hill yeah, they or Willits. Or... they
0: have their own philosophy, their own way of doing things, and not to say that it hasn't been very successful for them, because by God, it has. Buffalo yeah. Trace is one of the most awarded distilleries, um, and the most sought after brands. In fact, you know, to the point that those brands are basically extinct now, mm-hmm. which I'm not sure in the long run helps them, but in the short term, it creates a lot of buzz. Right And, um, you know, I, I, I can't speak to what Mark, Mark Brown thinks or Harlan Wheatley thinks. You'd have to have them on the show, talk to them about it. <laughs> Mark, Mark might we, be a We tough did, one. but they
2: have a publicist sitting <laughs> right next to him and they're like, they're not going to answer Shut us. up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is that. There so is we, were, that. we
1: were talking about, before we really got started here, talking about, like, what do you think this vintage spirit law is going to do for just the, the bottom line, the pricing, the secondary pricing, because, you know, I've, I've said it before, I still think we're at the very beginning of the hockey stick. Um, I know a lot of people are going to take my side and think that this vintage spirits law is going to steadily increase the prices because at this point I am, I now have this, let's just say I've got my, my 2007 uh, Van Winkle 20 year, that is pure Stitzel Weller, And now I've got a much larger market that I could sell to that people that aren't on Facebook or aren't on Bottle Spot or some of these different places, um, and I could deliver it here locally, they can sell it in their shops, they can do whatever.
0: See, I disagree with that. I I think the market is what the market is. I don't think there's going to be a flood of new entrants hungry for vintage bottles coming into the market. Um,
2: I mean... So you don't anticipate more competition, I guess, from other bars around the state or in trying to embrace this, you know, uh, vintage I think bottle. it's a
0: real niche market. I mean, when you're talking about vintage whiskey bottles that cost upwards of
1: $400. Um, $400 is like the
0: low, the <laughs> low point, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean. That's what I'm saying. When you yeah. talk about bottles that cost starting at $400, you know, there's not that many places that people are going to go into. You know, look, I can only tell you that I have a certain margin. When I buy a a good, namely a bottle of whiskey, whether I buy it, you know, f- f- whether I buy. Uh, from your own private collection or whatever, right? No, no, yeah. no. What I mean to say is whether I buy from one distillery or another, if I buy a bottle of whatever the product is, let's say I buy a barrel of four roses and that bottle comes to me and it costs X. Well, when I sell it, I'm looking to get a certain number of X's back out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the business. You buy a product and then you resell it. Um, When you're talking about bottles that are $400 and up, um, you know, it makes the price of the poor real expensive if you're going to try to get your money out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, You're also talking about wrapping up a relatively large amount of capital— for a relatively long amount of time because the more expensive that bottle is, the longer it's going to sit on your shelf because, honestly, there's not a super deep pool of people in Louisville, Kentucky, even with all the tourism and bourbon excitement that we have, that are buying whiskey that is more than $100 a pour because, mm-hmm. you know, it's 100 bucks for a drink of whiskey and you can spend 100 bucks far more creatively than just buying one dram of whiskey. <laughs> and it might be. I mean, look, there's some great whiskeys out guess, there. I guess I'm just thinking, like, you know, I've been to Jack Rose's, and
2: it's like, you know, ever. Obviously, D.C. is a much different market than Louisville, but I would you think— You do
0: have all those
2: diplomats. Yeah, exactly.
0: But, <laughs> and millionaires. But now Jack
2: Rose has become that, like, destination for bourbon drinkers to go to. But now you have where you can come to Louisville and— do it at haymarket and you know while you're on the bourbon trail it just seems like it's all meshing together to where like yeah it but it seems but like people I and think Jack
0: I think the DC market is different enough every market is local one of the things I've learned about the bar business is every market is different and what works in DC will not necessarily work in Louisville and yes there is that bourbon thread there but I just I just don't see there being that many people out there that are going to buy $400 an ounce whiskey in Louisville, Kentucky. This is not Jack Rose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Haymarket is not and honestly, I don't know if I want to be the guy selling that. I really don't. Like I personally don't think there's no whiskey that there's there's nothing worth that much money. You know, let's be realistic. It's fucking whiskey. <laughs> let's let's let like, you know let's let a little air out of the balloon. We were talking about irrational exuberance before when it comes to Van Winkles. And I think there's a little bit of that with vintage whiskey as well. Um You just don't think, like, now. you're going to have some. Don't get me wrong. You're always going to have some,
1: right? Once this law gets passed. like Oh, well, absolutely. Okay, you're going to embrace it to a degree.
0: Absolutely. But, But we're going to embrace it so it works for our guests and also for ourselves. Meaning, what's the point of having a bunch of vintage whiskey bottles if it's literally sitting there, not $400 for an ounce of whiskey, and it takes you three years from the moment you open that bottle or longer? To sell, I mean, how many people are going to buy four hundred dollar ounces of whiskey? I could, I could easily go out and put those bottles up. You know, I could. anybody mm-hmm. can go out. No, know, everybody knows what the black market pricing looks like for Stitzel Weller for very, very old Fitzgerald twelve years. So, I mean, but let's go back to that idea. If you spend, let's say, you buy one of those very, very old Fitzgeralds with the foil and twelve year old and hundred proof or whatever, and you spend twenty five hundred dollars. On that bottle as a business owner, not as just somebody who is in the collector's market, which is different, but as somebody who's going to then resell that whiskey, what is what, maybe 25 ounces in that bottle after evaporation? If it was a quart bottle, maybe five ounces evaporated. That'd be pretty good. So so now you've just spent $100 an ounce. Mm-hmm. So you're going to want to double your money, aren't you? <laughs> that makes it $200 an ounce. But what if you don't want to double your money? What if you want to quadruple your money because every other product you buy for your store, right, you know? What makes that a better investment? What what makes it a better place for me to put that money in? As a business owner, that's the question I ask myself. And, and that's why I believe that's luck. why I believe prices are are you can only go so far. Right. There's only going to be so many guys who are willing to spend 2500 bucks for a bottle that they're then going to Resell for whatever they're reselling it for.
1: So you think maybe the the vintage spirits law is probably more of a I don't want to say a show, but it's it's just something that it moves the ball forward. Yet it's not going to be a game changer. Like it's is,
0: absolutely a game changer for those of us in the retail business. It is not a game changer if you are a hoarder or a flipper. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, it's an absolute game changer for us because we can now offer all these vintage whiskeys and market them. Right? And that's cool, you know? I mean, we can compete fairly with the cannons and the Jack Roses of the world. Um, I think it's going to mean instead of having 400 whiskeys on the shelf, you've got 500. Right. It's going to make, you know, it's another step towards having that world class collection. Right. Which, if you look at the places that have the world class collections, they have the vintage Mm whiskeys. Right. So you need to have that. Because again, the new standard's not going to be, oh, well, does he have a. Uh, a full Taylor lineup Small of, yeah. yeah, does he not, you know, does he have a full lineup of Van Winkle's and antiques? It's going to be like... Does he have the Stitzelweller lineup of
2: Van Winkle's? A bunch of pre-pro nonsense and all this other kind of It could be yeah, that, yeah. yeah I mean, and I
0: think, and you know, the... there's only going to be a handful of people that are going to have that collection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we hope Haymarket can stand its own. But I certainly... Um, So you actively
2: now pursuing this juice, you know, some of the old less actively, because I believe the
0: market's at its top and the whole name of the game is buy low, sell high. (laughs) (laughs) So no, I'm not buying as much vintage whiskey as I did two years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, I did buy quite a bit. In the last five years, in hope that this would happen, I was always dreaming that this law change would happen, and that I would then be able to commercialize this whiskey.
1: Right. Okay. So you're sitting on a pretty good inventory now. So that's that's always a positive, right? Then. So maybe maybe not Given these <laughs> giving these rolling eyes. And so um, I I, I kind of will also kind of ask like for anybody else that's in the Louisville market that wants to like, start like buying these vintage whiskeys and doing this, like how do you protect yourself from counterfeits? Because there's been a lot of counterfeits the whole Brandon Priest thing and it's all of the kind of stuff that went down and it's not going to be the end of it, right? Like, counterfeits are going to still happen. Um, if so- anything, counterfeits will increase. Exactly. So, how
2: how do you protect yourself? It's that damn documentary, Sour Grapes, probably inspired <laughs> everybody.
0: <laughs> you know, crime is, it, it's all about opportunity. If yeah. There, if there's, there's look, we all know P.T. Barnum was right. There's the sucker born every minute, you know, and probably two every minute here in, uh, in America. But, you know, how do you protect yourself? You have to do your research. you got to know what you're buying. you got to know who you're buying it from. Um, and honestly, no matter what kind of expert you are, no matter how much experience you have, you could get taken. Any Anybody could get taken. If mm-hmm. it's good enough fake. I mean, there's plenty of examples in the wine industry where very high-end wine collectors end up buying fake bottles. Um, it is a concern. It is a danger. I think that... The best way to combat that is to not give in to the irrational exuberance <laughs> and recognize that it's just whiskey. And just because it's old doesn't necessarily make it better. Sure, there's some great older whiskeys out there. There's some great modern whiskeys out there, but it's just whiskey. At the end of the day, you, you, wanted, you <laughs> wanted me to deflate the bag or reveal the secret. At the end of the day, the bar business is not built on the top shelf, Right. Yeah, it's you, you just, those everyday. It's just, items. Not, it's, not, it's just not, that's not how you build a business. That's not what you do for your regulars. Um, and that's not what drives volume. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to be successful as a bar or as a packaged liquor store, it's the less sexy stuff, you know, the, I guess.
2: The business, the I know.
0: They used to say in the bar business that vodka paid the bills. They used to say in the bar business that vodka paid the bills. It's not true in the Haymarket's case, <laughs> um, but I mean, PBR you know, for every that. for every pour of hundred dollar and up whiskey I'm selling, am I selling twenty five pours of Old Forester, mm-hmm. or Buffalo Trace, or Heaven Hill Green Label Six Year? I bet you I am, you know. And at the end of the day, that's the same amount of money, right? You know.
1: What do you would take the the fast
0: road? And, the, in fact, the, and in fact, and in fact, the margins are even better potentially.
1: Oh yeah, they're at the bottom. Oh, I would imagine so. So, how, what is this the vintage spirits law? So, when I want to go and say you want to buy a bottle from me, like, is there is it just a piece of paper and like you just PayPal me this? I mean, do I need to? Do you yeah. need to take a do picture and send a seat?
0: A, <laughs> send a picture and send it to Frankfurt
1: and be like, here you go? Well, like, nobody
0: knows. How- nobody knows. I mean. We're waiting. Yeah. Nobody knows right now. I mean, the law doesn't go into effect until January 1st. Hopefully. The definition goes in I mean, no, the law's passed. The law goes into effect January 1st. Mm-hmm. It's already law. It just doesn't go into effect until January 1st. There's no hopefully about it. Yeah. It's happening.
1: Um, but there's just a lot of details that are still just kind of cloudy that if they don't
2: get cleared up that just it is, is to it? your own discretion. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Is it an accounting nightmare for your accountant? Like, I'm going to need all those receipts for from uh, those uh, bottles you bought three years ago <laughs> as expenses. I mean, well, so figure, what do you do? Just write it down? Like, oh, I bought this one for you know five hundred bucks
0: or whatever, and basically that's your expense. You know, yeah. I mean, that's that's exactly how you do it. Yeah. You you basically, I mean, if you were smart, you'd already <laughs> been tracking all of that, and right, you've already given it to your accountant because. There's nothing that says you couldn't invest. That yeah, right. But I guess even if you couldn't legally resell it,
2: I guess then how's the IRS? You know, be like, well, how does that make sense? You well, the IRS six hundred dollar that something was valued at like I don't know ten dollars, you know, in the eighties or whatever. But now it's a five hundred dollar bottle. I don't know. The IRS judges
0: that based on your income. Right, that's what the IRS does. So when I sell the whiskey. Come January, the amount of money that I sell it for becomes its value. Yeah. Right. I'm sure right? It doesn't it matter what out. it I cost just, in the first place. Curious. You expense it at what you paid for it, and you pay sales tax and whatever taxes on it for mm-hmm. what you sell it for. I mean, that's just yeah. like any other commodity. No, right. Yeah. I guess I, I, guess, mean, guess, I guess it's just whiskey right blood. now is selling for eight bucks a proof gallon, but you know, you can't find any bottles of whiskey for eight bucks.
2: Right. No, I
1: So,
0: I mean, how do you measure that? Well, you
1: almost came with the Heaven Hill green label, right? But yeah. (laughs) It certainly isn't a gallon. No, it is not. That is maybe a a fifth of a gallon. Yeah. So there you go. (laughs) So uh, I kind of want to like kind of pivot this one more time and we'll start closing out here. So there's a... You know, you run a, a very one of the you know most successful whiskey bars. that's in America. It's in all kinds of publications. You get a lot of great accolades. A lot of great whiskey writers talk about it. And so people are going to look at this and say, you know, I want to get into this action. Like I want to open a whiskey bar. Maybe not Louisville. Maybe in a different market. What what mistakes have you made that you say like this is what I would have done differently, or what have you done that's so successful? You're saying like this this is the recipe for success right here.
0: I can't really give much advice, I mean, without knowing who the person is or what the market is, because every market is different. And what I managed to get away with in Louisville, I don't think you can replicate. Um, number one, you're not going to have access to the to the whiskey that we have had access to um, in terms of getting allocated products, in terms of just getting everyday products. I mean, every yeah, like Kentucky Hill bourbon six year is, is available yeah. in Kentucky, mm-hmm. period. And every small producer wants to be on a back bar in Kentucky. Because if you're a craft producer or a non-distilling producer, being on the back bar in Louisville means you've made it, mm-hmm. right? So everybody comes to market in Louisville. This is the largest bourbon market in America. Uh, we have access to everything. Um, you won't if you're in Ohio or Pennsylvania or control state. You won't have access. It makes it much more difficult to, you know, put together a 400 whiskey back bar. Um, but if you're dedicated and you're determined, then nothing will stop you, you know? I mean, pers- perseverance furthers. Uh, if you want to own a great whiskey bar, let me be the shining light. Because if <laughs> a guy like me can do it, you know? I mean, who never wanted to even be in the whiskey business or never wanted to be in the bar business, and we somehow made it, that means that if you really work hard and you're really passionate about your bourbon and you uphold great tradition of hospitality and you take care of your teammates and your customers and you build a great bar staff, there's nothing that can stop you from being a success. So I guess I want to ask
1: one more question. You know, When it comes to the crafts and the NDPs and stuff like that, where do you see this market going? Uh, you know, Do you think this is going to create a glut in a few years? Do you think this is going to be, uh, you know, you said that, you know, they want to be on your back bar, right? Like that is their pinnacle of success. So how often are they coming in there? And like, how, how do you think that, you know, all these people coming in and they want their, their products on your shelf?
0: Like, is it, is it going to be too much? Well, you know, we try to act as a gatekeeper and, and when, when new brands come to visit Haymarket, I mean, you know, we have a pretty, we have a pretty, strict set of criteria. If if your whiskey ain't four years old, you better be made within like three miles of my house. (laughs) Pretty much. I mean, like, we just don't really sell young whiskey. I just don't don't get into it. Um, I make a few exceptions for small startup brands here in Louisville. So that's the first barrier to entry into that bigger marketplace. Um, Most craft producers can't really make enough whiskey to make a dent in the overall market. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you're talking about on the large side of things, craft producer might be making a dozen barrels a day. On the small side of things, they're making one barrel a day. <laughs> yeah. Somebody who's making 365 barrels a year or even 5,000 barrels a year has zero effect on the market. They are not actually going to cause a glut. Um, I think the danger to the bourbon industry right now that I see, uh, the, the biggest potential stumbling block would be uh Potential trade wars, um, some of the larger trade issues that are being discussed at the federal level by the president, uh, could really hurt the bourbon industry if if there are um, if we do start reintroducing tariffs and and getting out of free trade agreements, um, that could hurt the bourbon industry because a lot of the big producers are ramping their capacity up with their eye on overseas markets. Um, some of that ramped up production will certainly come to America but really what America is is a mature market um, with a lot of prestige whiskeys and ultra premium whiskeys really being the focus you know the, the days of the Heaven Hill Green Label Sure, it's a cult favorite, available only here in Kentucky. But look, the market's changed. It's not about that ten dollars fifth of bottom shelf yeah. whiskey anymore. It's about the limited release, Elmer <laughs> T. Lee and Rock Hill Farms, and it's about William Heaven Hill, and it's about Elijah Craig Barrel Strength, and it's about those Four Roses single barrels. It's in this other category where the average bottle price is not ten dollars. It's more like fifty and plus, yeah, yeah to yeah. seventy five dollars, or even fifty to a hundred dollars. Um, so a lot of this young whiskey that's being barreled right now, uh, this ramp up in production, sure, there's a potential that three, four years from now, if that whiskey can't be sold overseas. There's a problem. <laughs> I don't know if we, I don't know if there's a problem, but it means there's a lot of four-year-old barrels aging, which what will happen is they'll ramp production back down, you know. Mm-hmm. If production comes back down, that means fewer jobs. If there's fewer jobs, that means there's fewer people making the whiskey. If there's fewer people making the whiskey, that means there's less investment into the distilleries. So that can snowball. Um, You know, if if America puts steel tariffs on the European Union, uh, they have already threatened to put punitive tariffs on Kentucky bourbon. Uh, They've singled out Kentucky bourbon because guess what? Mitch McConnell, leader of the Senate— is from mm-hmm. Kentucky. Mm-hmm. You kick them where it hurts. You know, there's there's no such thing as fair trade unless it's truly fair. But if you go to war, then people are going to go and try to pinch you. Uh, that's a real danger. I think that's more of a danger than new distilleries coming online. I'm a champion of the craft distilling movement. Um, with the caveat that you got to figure out how to survive for four years before you (laughs) put your whiskey on our shelf. Uh, and if you manage to do that, then, you know, then you might have a great future in the whiskey business, but you know, everybody's got to pay their dues. Um, and for me, dues are considered four-year-old straight (laughs) whiskeys. There you go. You know, you know, if I can get it at 100 proof, that's, I'll take it. Yeah. (laughs) I'd be happy to take it that way.
1: Well, awesome. So Matt, I want to say thank you again for coming on the show today. We did not do you at service and said, give us the address of Haymarket. Yeah. We didn't even say that.
0: Well, you know, you got to come by the Haymarket Whiskey Bar whenever you're in Louisville. Um, We've got probably the best bourbon collection in town, some 400 different American whiskeys with uh, nearly 500 spirits altogether. You know, we do have a few rums and a few gins and even some absinthe too. We're located at 331 East Market Street, downtown Louisville, Kentucky. That's 40202 between Floyd and Preston streets.
1: Well, awesome so Matt thank you again for coming on the show today It was yeah. very insightful I mean I think we took this in a few different
0: directions so it was really cool. Well I hope very everybody good. had a good time listening
1: <laughs> <laughs> We'll make they sure they, do. We'll make sure you guys ever to leave comments on Facebook news feeds and all that other kind of stuff and then uh, then Matt Matt'll know you're paying attention. And then uh, go in and mention that you saw us in Bourbon Pursuit, and he'll pour you a twenty dollar Van Winkle twenty three, right?
2: Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the Burn Pursuit special. Yeah, I'm just kidding with you on that one, but uh, definitely
2: it's it's. Uh, I mean, we've all been to it here. Uh, it's just a it's just a staple of Louisville and bourbon, right? So it's yeah. Any a friend out of town guest comes, you're like, where do I go? You say.
0: Haymarket, that's where you go. Haymarket's great because it really doesn't matter what you drink or what you wear. Yeah. We we treat people the same whether they're coming in and they're ordering, you know, Van Winkle or they're ordering that six-year-old Heaven Hill because ultimately we want people to have a good time with us, you know, and it's not predicated on being snobby and it's not predicated on how much money you spend because we're not an upscale place. There's no pinkies up. (laughs) No, no, not
1: at all, not at all, you know. Unless you're ordering the espresso. Yeah, right. no, that's right. <laughs> Derby City Day. Oh, I'm just messing. So, Matt, again, thank you for coming on the show. If you like what you hear, make sure you support us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Follow us on those great social media channels. You can also support the show on Patreon, p a t r e o n dot com slash Bourbon pursuit. We love, uh, you know, everybody that is supporting the show. It goes a long way in uh, making sure that we can buy new equipment and keep this thing rolling. So. Yep,
2: we'll pay for our gas over here. You know our time. Yeah, you know, absolutely. <laughs> packing those shipping labels and whatnot. But yeah, appreciate you all listening. If and anytime you have show suggestions or feedback comments, we love hearing from you because that's what we're here for—is uh, to bring this show to you guys. So thanks again.